Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of John and from the book of Luke. From John, we'll be reading verse 19, I'm sorry, chapter 19, verses 1 through 5, 14 to 18, and 29 to 30. From Luke, it will be chapter 24, verses 1 to 9. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged, and the soldiers wore a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they dressed him in a purple robe. They kept coming up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and striking him on the face. Pilate went out again and said to them, Look, I'm bringing out to him out to you to let you know that I find no case against him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Here is the man. Now it was the day of the preparation for the Passover, and it was about noon. He said to the Jews, Here is your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate asked them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but the emperor. Then he handed him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him and with him two others, one on either side, with Jesus between them. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, It is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. This is the word of God for the people of God. Um, when uh, just at the beginning of uh, Holy Week, uh, it seemed like my Holy Week came to an abrupt end just as things were beginning. Uh, on Tuesday, Kevin White and Carolyn McGee and, and I were trying to move a piano from the chapel to, uh, to the sanctuary, getting ready for the Living Last Supper drama in which I was to play... Uh, Nathaniel, who was without guile, apparently I was also without a place at the table because I wasn't able to able to uh, do my part. But uh, I know I, I, that would have been a lot easier, right? Well, um, anyway, it just happens that uh, I uh, I have a compound fracture, which means one of my vertebrae has decided to get a little shorter. So I'm a, uh, I'm a little shorter now. I think maybe it was God's way of saying you're getting a little too uh, too too high and mighty. I guess I don't know. Anyway, I want to uh, just share a couple of apologies uh, as as I begin. Number one, um, I um, I'm not one to preach from a manuscript. I don't type out 
a sermon. Um, uh, usually if I do that, it's after the fact. I have an extended um, uh, notes that I preach from. And, uh, but because I wasn't sure if I was going to make it through three sermons today, uh, I did do that so that I can uh, turn it over to Phil and he can finish the sermon if I... If I'm not, if I'm not able to complete that, I, um, so um, I do apologize for that, and and I apologize for putting you all through this. But so you understand, this is my last Easter uh, uh, that I will be able to uh, preach in a service at um, uh, at First Church because I'll be retiring at the end of June, and really it's the last. Easter that I will preach, and you know, pastors don't really like guest preachers to come and preach on their Easter Sunday, so uh, I'm not likely to get invitations uh, from other pastors to preach on Easter, Um, but it's also the last of my 43 years of active ministry in the United Methodist Church, so so I guess I'm being just a little bit selfish, um, and... um, Phil reminds me that, uh, you know, it's in the Hebrew tradition in the days of Jesus that rabbis or teachers would actually sit and and teach, but I'm not going to, I won't do that for you all. It's, it would be hard enough to see me now that I'm so much shorter. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, that's my background. I just wanted to give you a little, little heads up on all of that. Let us, uh, let us turn to God in prayer. Dear Lord, as we come now to the close of Holy Week, we we are reminded what a roller coaster experience it it was in the time of you and your disciples in Jerusalem so long ago, but also for us today. It begins on that high note of Palm Sunday with palm branches being waved and people crying out Hosanna, Hosanna. And then we move through the week where you shared with your disciples that last meal and told them that you would be taken and beaten and crucified. And, and then that's exactly what happens. And you're called to carry your cross to Golgotha and there you're nailed to a cross and you die for the sins of the world. And yet, three days later, you're back among us and you've risen and so this roller coaster continues its journey and Lord we um, we pray now that as we contemplate the last words that you spoke from the cross and we, we pray that you would help us to understand how those words really give meaning to the resurrection and how they're so closely intertwined and connected. Help us, Lord, to hear what you have to say to us about these these events. We pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to what you have to say. Don't let the preacher's words get in the way, but speak to us with your spirit. Help us to hear that still, small voice that comes only from you. Speak to us, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. For the past seven Sundays, we have been, um, you know, examining 
the last words of Jesus that he spoke on the cross. And um, these words are traditionally called the seven last words. And today we come to the last of those words. According to the Gospel of John, a sponge of cheap wine was was put on a hyssop branch by the soldiers that had nailed Jesus to the cross, and they lifted lifted that uh, that sponge with the wine, with the hyssop branch up to the lips of Jesus, and then moments later, Jesus speaks his last words: "It is finished." And then he bows his head and he dies. What takes three words for us to say in English, it is finished, took only one word in Greek. If you read the, uh, John's gospel in, in its original Greek, Jesus doesn't say it is finished, but he says taleo. Now he probably was speaking Aramaic, uh, but it's John who puts these words, he translates those words into a single Greek word, taleo. And the root word means to complete or to finish. And because John has presented the word in the first person, the phrase should probably more accurately be translated, I am finished, not not the it is finished as we have in our English translation. The question is, wouldn't we all like to say that? Wouldn't we all like to say, I'm finished, I'm done. It's all over. There's something very satisfying about completing a task. You know what one week from today is? April 15, tax day. Uh, Is everybody finished filing your taxes? Isn't there something very, well, satisfying about completing that task, as difficult as it can be? You know, before there was electronic filing, Uh, My wife, Cheryl, and our three boys could tell you that we would often pile in our van on the evening of April 15th, really only moments before midnight, and we would make our way down to the uh, main post office up in Northern Virginia. And and I would pull in line with the line of cars that would be blocks long as they would make their way, winding their way, up to the post office. There were so many cars and so many tax forms being turned in at the stroke of midnight on April 15th that the postal uh, workers actually would stand out in the street and they would have these huge, almost like dumpster-like boxes to collect the tax forms. And we would drive by. Ah, it was so thrilling to hand it out the window. Done. I'm finished. It's over. Now, for those of you who uh, had the privilege of going to college, how about that last exam of the last class of your college career? Can you remember that? How bittersweet it was to put that last period on the last sentence of the last essay of that last exam booklet. It's finished. I'm done. It's finally over. For me, the, the relief begins at about noon on Sunday <laughs> when I can say amen at the end of the last benediction on Sunday morning, having just preached three sermons. 
Yes, amen. Finally, I can breathe. That's what I feel about noon or a little thereafter. I can breathe. It's finished. If there's anything a retiring preacher might find bittersweet, it's an end to that relentless return of the Sabbath that we call it that brings with it all the demands of a Sunday morning worship experience. Now, my problem is I'm always afraid there's something left to be done. You know, there's something that hasn't quite been finished, so it's hard for me to say I'm finished. Like an artist that keeps putting another stroke of paint on a canvas. You know, oh, that smile isn't just right, or that, that eye, that cheek, that, that landscape. There, there's something yet that needs to be done. We just keep putting it on because it's not quite finished. In the same way, I keep wanting to add something else to make the work just a little more perfect in my life. And often... As with the artists, I end up messing things up along the way because I can't accept the fact that maybe the work is finished. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I have a letter to mail in a, in a mailbox, you know, I hold it for a few moments. and I, It's hard for me to let go of it because I find myself just saying, did I get that address right? Did I spell their name right? Oh, I bet I misspelled. Oh, and what about that zip code? Or... Did I sign the check? Did, uh, did, is the postage correct? You know, I can go through a whole litany of things, and I just can't let go of it. And then finally it goes. The truth is, those words, it is finished, are some of the most satisfying words in the English language. Paying off a loan, getting your last child through college, for some, getting that gold watch after many years of service or the gold medal after many years of preparation. These are moments that can bring a great sense of accomplishment for a lot of people. If not, just a little bit of sadness as something very important comes to an end. However, if, if we are honest, most of the time we can't say it's finished. Most of our lives are filled with unfinished business, like parenting. Parenting just never ends, you know. Not if we care, in, in other words. Once a mother or father, always a mother or father. Our love for our children never ends. Sometimes there's a hurt in our life or a mistake that we made, maybe a failure that follows us to the grave. It, it just... Have you found that it just kind of gets resurrected in, in your life? When, when, when you're having a tough time, it's like you remember all those other tough times and you just can't let go of them. We try but often cannot get over a bitterness or, or a heartache that never seems to have an end. Oh, how we would love to say, it's finished, I'm done with it. But we can't. Sometimes we can't find the end to a broken relationship, whether that relationship ended by death or divorce or maybe by time or distance. Like the mother who's lost a child, we continue to keep an empty place at the table, longing for the child's return. Oh, how our lives would be different if we could simply say it's finished. 
On the cross, however, Jesus said, it is finished. That's what he said. He did what he came to do. He finished what he began. That's because he had an excellent teacher. The book of Genesis tells us that on the seventh day of creation, and I quote, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day. That's chapter 2, verse 2. Did you hear that? He rested. God rested because God had finished the work that God had planned to do. We don't always believe that, though. That's why some people still drive around with the bumper stickers. You've seen them. God isn't finished with me yet. Now, while that's true, that we all still have some rough edges to be you know, smoothed out, the truth of the matter is that God's love for creation, God's love for us is finished. It's complete. According to Genesis in the first chapter, verse 31, God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was very good. The problem is we don't believe that. We haven't believed that from the very beginning of time. And that's why we try to finish what God began. We, we try to play God. We either try to go it alone, you know, pretend there is no God and fill our lives with people and things that we think will help us feel better about ourselves, you know, help us feel like we're loved. Or we try to make God love us. You know, we try to kind of force God's hand by, and often that's by playing the religion game. You know, if we do everything that God says we ought to do, then maybe God will love us. It also helps us think we're just a little bit better than all those people that aren't doing the same thing. We just don't believe God's love is complete. So we try to complete it. And that is precisely why Jesus was sent into the world to communicate once and for all that God's love for the world is total and complete. John put it this way in his gospel, and you know it so well. John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God, You see, God sent his son into the world to show us the love that God has always had for us. It was precisely because God loved us that Jesus was sent. Now the Gospel of John is unique among the four Gospels. The synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called synoptic as, as I've explained before because they see Jesus with one eye. That's why they're called synoptic, sin Optic, the Greek words for one and I, synoptic. By and large, they all tell the story of Jesus in a, in a chronological order. You read about his birth or, and, then, and then his teachings and you know, his ministry, his healings, his, and finally his death and, and his resurrection in that order. That's how the synoptics tell the story of Jesus. In order to get the full meaning 
of his life and his ministry through the synoptics, you, you have to read the whole story. You have to read from the beginning to the end. Because if you just start and read about Jesus' birth, well, well, it has no meaning unless you get all the way to the end of the resurrection. And the, and the, and the death, the crucifixion has no meaning without the resurrection. And the resurrection has no meaning without the crucifixion. You have to read their stories from beginning to end. Their message, you see, is very linear. But John's gospel is different. He strings together encounters with Jesus like a string of pearls. They're they're all little capsule summaries of the meaning of Jesus. The healing of the blind man, the the encounter with the Samaritan woman, the, that nocturnal visit with Nicodemus, the, the raising of Lazarus, each one of these stories capture the full, complete meaning and message of Jesus' life. Every pearl holds the truth of Jesus' mission, and that mission is to reveal God and to reveal God's love for the world. That's Jesus' purpose in the Gospel of John. And that's why only in John do you hear Jesus say, I am, when people are saying, who are you? He says, I am, I am, ego me. That's the, the Greek translation of the, of the word that is spoken out of the burning bush to Moses when Moses wanted to know, who should I say sent me when I go to Pharaoh? And God says out of the burning bush, tell them I am sent you, Yahweh. And the Greek translation of that phrase, that I am, that word for the very being, the one who brought everything into being, is ego me. And those words you will find only in the Gospel of John throughout the whole New Testament, nowhere else. You see, John is trying to tell us something about who Jesus is. And what his purpose is. Only in John's gospel does Jesus say to Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. It's John 14, 9. And only in John's gospel does Jesus declare in the temple, the Father and I are one. John 10, 30. In the synoptic gospels, Jesus is crucified because he's a rebel rouser, because he's a threat to the power structures of his day, to those that are political and those that are religious. They see him as a threat, and so they want to get rid of him. But in John's gospel, he is crucified precisely because he dares to equate himself with God. You see, for, for John, the very appearance of Jesus is a completion of his mission. Just by coming on the scene, touching the blind man's eyes, giving living water to the, to the Samaritan woman, telling Nicodemus that God loves the world, raising Lazarus to life. You see, Jesus is revealing who he is and what he's here for, to bring life and love to the world. His death on the cross completes that revelation. God is love. The very essence of God is love. And God's love is completely revealed in the cross. 
the empty tomb, the resurrection of Jesus, simply underscores the fact that that love is everlasting. It has no end. Not even death can overcome it. That's why John spends 44 verses telling the story of the raising of Lazarus and only 18 verses telling about the resurrection of Jesus. Think about it. It's not that the raising of Jesus is unimportant, not at all. But what, what John is trying to say to us is that that resurrected life belongs to all of us, just as it belonged to Lazarus. God's love is everlasting, never-ending, and it's meant for everyone, for Lazarus, for his sisters, Mary and Martha, and for you and me. You see, the empty tomb simply proclaims what Jesus revealed on the cross, that God's love is complete. It's finished. It's done. It always has been. When the soldiers put that cheap wine, you know, on a, on a sponge and put the sponge on the hyssop branch like, like Moses called on his people to do with the blood of the Paschal lamb, as they raised that sponge, that cheap wine up to the lips of Jesus, it was as if the blood of the Paschal Lamb was being spread across the doorpost of the world for everybody to see. God's love for everyone is now complete. It was as if they were painting a sign above the cross that read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. It is finished, Jesus said. All we have to do is believe. Let us pray. Lord, forgive us for our unbelief. Forgive us for thinking, well, you loved us a little bit, but not enough. And so we spend our lives trying to accumulate things or people that will tell us that we're loved all the while not believing all the while knowing there is something that's so empty inside our hearts help us Lord to hear your words from the cross and to see who you are you are God's love incarnate and it's meant for us all. Amen.